Jeremiah chapter 2. It's good to have the Comptons with us as well. I flew in for a couple, a couple of different reasons, but I believe, uh, Brother Compton, you have surgery, right, coming in? Yeah. Yes. Cataract. Cataract surgery. So keep him in prayer here uh, as they came in for that. And then uh, just to keep each other in prayer, of course, uh, always a good thing. I know Greg likes to mention it on Wednesday nights. Uh, we need each other's prayers more than we realize. Um, so it's, uh, it's always a good thing. And... Uh, Let's just keep that in mind as we go throughout our week. All right, Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse number 9. We'll read the passage, pray, and then we will get into the message here this evening. Jeremiah 2, verse number 9. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, and send unto, unto, excuse me, unto Kedar, and consider diligently... And see if there be such a thing. Have a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for all you've done. I pray that you just be with this um, time of preaching. Lord, I pray that you fill me with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you meet the needs that are here this evening. We already heard some of the requests. I pray that you meet each of those according to your will. But Lord, as we come into this time and your words speaking to us, I pray, Lord, that you, uh, you make our hearts tender and that we be responsive to the Spirit's leading. And the Lord, especially if there's one in here who has never accepted you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that they see how great their need is, that they are under condemnation and uh, are in danger of passing off into eternity to spend eternity in a lake of fire. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit draw them and they accept you as their Savior tonight. And we'll give you all the honor and glory for everything that comes about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah chapter 2 here is a, a, just a really great chapter. And the, the first eight verses details God's questioning of Israel, basically, as they have decided to forsake him. And he's kind of, he's detailing how it happened. Uh, for the, Israel forsaking God despite all the good things that he had done for them. Uh, there's no reason given for Israel's backsliding in the first eight verses. <clears throat> and then we also find in verse, uh, lost the verse now, verse eight, the ones who should have been the ones calling for the nation to stay close to God, the ones who should have been remembering the Lord. You see, the, it gives us uh, three different groups of people: the priests, pastors, and prophets. They were some of the ones who transgressed the most against God. These were the ones who should have been pleading with the people, no, stay to God. Don't forsake uh, the God of our fathers. Look at all he's done. But no, they were forsaking God and they were leading the forsaking away from God. In the text that we read, it makes it clear 
why there was no reason given for Israel leaving God. That's because there's no real reason to ever leave God. Uh, leaving God is illogical. And that's what we're going to look at here t- uh, tonight. The absurdity of forsaking God Almighty is so great, that how the Israelites did it was so great, that God calls on the heavens themselves to be astonished, to be afraid, and to be desolate. He's like, look at this. He's, so he's, he's looking at, his, at the pinnacle of his creation, God, or mankind, and he's calling on the heavens and saying, look at this. Can you imagine this? Be astonished. Look at how absurd this is. They're leaving me. It's all, of course, through the rebellion, through the forsaking. Uh, we've all seen examples where rebellion led to illogical behavior, whether it be a child to a parent, a, a co-worker to a boss. We've all seen some pretty illogical behavior, and like, this is, you're just being ridiculous. This is absurd. <clears throat> or sometimes it even occurs from a church member to their pastor. And here in our text, we find that the creature... Mankind, Israel, God's chosen people, is committing such a blatant act of defiance toward their creator that the heavens will metaphorically gasp in astonishment. Like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Implied in this verse is, this astonishment is combined with the knowledge that judgment will soon follow. And the charges laid against Israel in our text can be brought, I think, against many believers today. I know at different points in my life, this could have been laid at my door as well. A forsaking of God, of God and a reliance on other things or a reliance on other gods. But still, you see the goodness of God, you see the mercy of God, as in the first verse that we read, wherefore I will yet plead with you. Though we turn our back on God, He is still pleading with us to repent. To turn back. Over and over again, he pleads with his people. And his pleading in our text is done by giving three illustrations of the absurdity of forsaking him. Why in the world would you do this? And he gives three reasons why it is so illogical to leave God, to forsake following God. So the first one we're going to look at here is the faithfulness of pagan nations to their gods. Verses 10 and the first part of verse 11. Let's read those again. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? God tells Israel to look around them, to the isles of Chittim, which would be Cyprus, and some of the other islands of the Mediterranean as well, but primarily Cyprus. And then Kedar would be Arabia. So he's saying, you've got northwest and southeast. Look all around you and see if there's any of these nations that have forsaken their gods, which aren't gods at all. They're just figments of the imagination. And they carve out these, these gods out of wood and out of stone. And they worship them. But they stay true to them. Regardless of what happened to them, they stay true to their gods. Even offering up their own children as sacrifices to their gods. That's how loyal these pagan nations were to their false gods. 
And God again tells Israel to diligently consider. Think about it. Look at them. Think about the history of what you know of these nations. Have they ever left their gods? Have they ever changed their gods for some new ones? But again, the, the answer does not require, require much consideration. No, the pagan nations surrounding them had never changed their gods for others. You don't hear of the Moabites changing out uh, Moloch or Chemosh for an Egyptian god. They stay true to their gods. And if those who follow false gods can display such loyalty to them, how in the world can God's people forsake the one true God? It's amazing. Just, just absolutely amazing. How can we decide that the one who created us, who bought us with, with his own blood, is not worthy to be the God of our lives? Is not worthy to call the shots in our life? When you have all these other nations, with Israel's case, but in our case, we have all these other religions around the world. And we see the faithfulness they have to their false gods. We can think of the Mormons. They are very faithful to their false god, to their religion. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslim, can't get too much more faithful than killing yourself for your God. And their faithfulness so often puts us to shame. They're willing to endure so much, and they're willing to, to put in so much effort for what they believe. And we say we have the truth, that we believe the truth, but we don't put in nearly that, much, that amount of effort. Quite often, the pagans, or the different religions, believe their false gods more than we believe our God. It's astounding. Look at all these nations around you. Have they ever changed their gods? No, they have not. Not. And you're going to forsake me? Really is amazing. So we have the faithfulness of pagan nations that points to the absurdity of leaving the one true God, God Almighty. But we also have the fruit, fruitlessness of, cha- of forsaking God. That is found in the latter portion of verse 11. But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. What brought glory to the nation of Israel? Was it not when they were following God? When they followed Moses and God parted the Red Sea, that brought a lot of glory to Israel. They were following God. When they followed Joshua and God parted the Jordan River and the nation's there in the land of Canaan were petrified. They were terrified of the Israelites coming in. That Rahab tells us that. They had a lot of glory when they were following God. Think of King David, King Solomon, the glory that Israel had under Solomon's reign. So much wealth in the kingdom that silver was treated as like just as these pebbles that we have laying around. It's like driving up to camp and instead of driving down a road filled with dirt and gravel, it's filled with silver. That's that's just pavement. It's quite a bit of wealth. Quite a bit of glory that was brought to Israel because they were following God. You can think of all the different kings that followed God. Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. Any time a king was in place that said, we are going to follow God completely, the kingdom prospered. Much glory came. The greatest prestige Israel ever achieved 
was when they followed God. God was their glory. But when did the glory depart? We can look back at the book of Judges. Ichabod. The glory had departed from Israel. Why? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They were no longer following God. They weren't staying true to God. They forsook God. And the glory departed. They changed their glory for that which doth not profit. It doesn't help them at all. And what is a Christian's glory? Is it not his Lord? As the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ. That is the glory of us Christians. It's not our ability to get up and speak or to get, get up and sing. Or how, how much money we can bring in. That's not the glory of a Christian. The glory of a Christian is God himself, Jesus Christ. That is our glory. Yet so often, we trade that glory for something that doesn't, isn't going to help us. We say, I'm not going to follow Christ, the one who died for me. I'm going I'm to change that out. I'm going to trade that for something that brings me a little bit of pleasure. Momentary pleasure. Or for something that makes me feel more comfortable. A bigger house. A better car. Bigger bank account. I'm going to trade following God to achieve this. It's not going to help you. They won't help you. God's people trading their glory. God himself following God for something that will not profit. My people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 30 when Israel is saying, is, instead of turning back to God, they say, we're going to go to Egypt and we're going to find help in Egypt. And God says, is, Egypt cannot profit you. The things of this world cannot help a Christian. There's no benefit to a Christian following worldly philosophy or going after the things of the world. Our hope, our help is in the Lord. As the Psalms say, says, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. That is what profits a Christian. That is what, what brings us fruit. What brings us the help that we need. It is not the things of this world, but too often we trade following God for something that does not help. We imitate the prodigal son. We waste what the Father has given to us on harlots and riotous living. And then what are we left with? Nothing. Sitting in a pig pen. We follow this prodigal's example far too often. We take what our Father has given to us, a good life, you know, happiness in the home. And we say, you know, I'm not going to follow God anymore. I'm going to look for something else. And we waste what, his, what he has, been, has given to us. And we trade that for something that will vanish very quickly. The harlots, the riotous living, and all vanished when the money ran out. And the famine hit. He had traded what his father had given him for something that was not going to profit him. And we do the exact same thing. A life that is lived pleasing to God is of great value. That is where the glory of a Christian is going to be, is from God. Are we giving that up for some vain thing that will soon vanish? Are we sacrificing the permit, permanent on the altar of the immediate? Willing to give up something of great value. Willing to give up the glory of God. 
and trade it for something of temporal value. The fruitlessness of this exchange points to the absurdity of, follow, of forsaking God. Third main point here that we see is found in verse 13, the failure of their own endeavors. Verse 13, For my people have, fors- have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The imagery found in this verse is incredible and very, very accurate. Obviously, it's true. It's found in the Word of God. Let's say you need water, and you have found a fountain of the purest water that never runs dry. Man, this water is good. I have never gone up to the top of a mountain and found a spring and drank out of it. But I have been told it's some of the best tasting water you can have. And think of that, that's what this fountain is. Fountain of living waters. There you go, Brother Tim. little plug for your business there. Living waters. And you found this spring. It doesn't go dry in, in the drought. And it, the water is just the purest you can ever find. And you decide, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something else. I'm going to build some cisterns. And I'm going to catch rainwater. And then I'm going to drink that. And as you build your cistern, you can't even build it right. It's broken. So even if you could collect this rainwater that becomes stale in the cistern, it won't even hold the water. The cistern that you broke, or that you built, won't even hold the stale rainwater. But you're going to rely on that instead of drinking from this spring of pure water. How absurd that would be. How stupid. Like, yeah, I know that's really good water right there, but I like my idea better. Because I get to be the source of it. I built it. Instead of relying on something you had no part in. How parched the life would be for no other reason than refusing to bend down and drink from the fountain. Choosing to go your own way, do your own, do it your own with your own methods. And Christian, does this verse describe your spiritual life? Have you forsaken the fountain of living waters to rely on broken cisterns? Think of the different life situations that we face, and that God has a way that we should follow for all of them. Are we going to follow God's way, the fountain of living waters, the right way? Or are we going to shake it and we're going to say, we're going to do it our way? What is better for you, drinking from pure running water or drinking from stale water coming out of a cistern? Think of of how much uh, junk gets into water if it's just pooling around. We think of a pond. And pond water is not exactly what you would choose first to drink. And that's exactly basically what a cistern ends up being. It's just stale water that just stays there. you got bugs flying into it. You know, plants and branches getting blown into it or whatever else comes into that water. And it wouldn't be nearly as good as that running water from that spring. But that's what so often we choose to drink from. So we'll look at three things that we choose, that we have a choice to make 
between the fountain of living waters or our own broken cisterns. First one is our, the purpose of our life. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1. Very familiar, a couple of verses to us. But what is the purpose of your life? God has given to us what the purpose of our life should be. What it should look like. This is the fountain of living waters. But too often we choose the broken sister. The purpose of our life. Philippians chapter 1, we'll read verses 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in, all, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why do you do what you do? What is the purpose of your actions? What is driving the direction of your life? The fountain of living waters uh, relating to the purpose of our life should be to magnify Christ, to glorify Him. Or as Solomon said at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The purpose of our life should be to lift up Christ, to magnify God. When we read Paul's letter here to the Philippians, he seems perfectly indifferent. Freedom, prison, death, I don't care. I'm indifferent to either one. As long as Christ was magnified, he would rejoice. If he stayed in prison indefinitely, if that's how Christ was best magnified, he would rejoice. If Christ was best magnified by his death, he, was re he would rejoice. If Christ was best magnified by his freedom, he would rejoice. He was indifferent. He goes on to say that he was in a strait between the two. He's like, I don't know which one I'm to hope for, whether to die or whether to get released. You know, you know some of us, even in our, in our best state, when we're closest to God, and if we found ourselves in Paul's situation, we would have a preference. Say, Lord, I would like to be released here. I want your, your magnification through it all, but I would like to be released. That'd be kind of my preference. Maybe I'm just more carnal than the rest of you guys. Uh, but Paul's like, I don't care. If I live, great. If I die, doesn't matter, as long as Christ is magnified. But many rely on the broken cisterns when it comes to their purpose for life. Fame, fortune, happiness, a life of comfort. When these become the purpose, then that dictates the actions of how people live. But it's just a broken cistern. It's not going to hold anything that will give you strength. It's not going to hold that which is essential to life. Water, obviously, being essential to life. And those who choose these things for the purpose of their life will find that cistern soon empty. It's a broken cistern. It can't hold that. It can never give you what you need to continue living your life. These will prove to be unreliable. And those who rely on these broken cisterns rely on them to their own detriment. It only hurts them. It doesn't hurt the fountain that you built a cistern. It hurts you. Second thing that we have a choice of choosing between the two is the manner of living, how we live our lives. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. 
read a few verses here out of Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. Skip down to verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We have a choice to make when it comes to how we live our lives, our manner of living. What do the activities of our life consist of? Is our life's conversation, our manner of living, is it more agreeable to the old man or to the new man? Are our activities drawn from the fountain or from the cistern? Again, think about your daily routine, the daily habits by which we live. Would these activities be condoned by the new man, by the Holy Spirit living inside of us? Or would they be condoned by the old man? Like, yeah, this is, this is the way we should do it. The lusts of the old man, they're deceitful, as we saw there in verse 22. Deceitful lusts. We can fall prey to them without even realizing it. We can be fulfilling the lusts of the old man and not even really realizing it. They're deceitful. It's like the, the, the fish seeing the worm and eating it, and he doesn't realize there's a hook on the inside. And he's snagged. Again, we can fall prey to these deceitful lusts. And you can think of different things that maybe are not bad in and of themselves, but they take over a spot in our life that they should never have. We can think of different things of recreation, whether it be sports, whether it be getting out in the outdoors and hunting or fishing, all these things. It's needed in its place. But the renewing of our mind will benefit, benefit us in every way. We reverse, read a verse here out of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. But refuse profane and old wise fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This bodily exercise, referred to as, as recreation, it helps the natural things. It's good to, to have some form of exercise in your life. But it can only affect the temporal. Godliness affects the temporal and the spiritual. It's profitable in all things. So when we are thinking about how we live our lives, which man resting for control in our life would more approve of how we live our life right now? Would the old man say, yep, this is, this is pretty good. I can, I, can, I can deal with this. This is, this is pretty good. I know you're saved, and that's a, that's a big bummer, but if we wanted to live life like this, I, I'd be okay with it. Or is it more with the new man, closer to what the new man would approve of? 
This is what's going to glorify Christ. This is what's going to help us keep a short account of sin. The manner of how we live our life, we have a choice to make. Are we going to choose God's way, mortifying the deeds of the flesh, denying self, and putting on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness? Or are we going to live after the deceitful lust? A life that is lived according to the old man is a life that, though it may be active, even in ministry, it will soon discover that the cistern is broken, and thus life is meaningless. All your actions come to naught. It is that which doth not profit. Purpose of life, the manner of our living, we have a choice to make. And thirdly, we have a choice to make in how we interact with others. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the, on the unjust. But if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. <coughs> We have a choice to make in how we will interact with others. The fountain of living water says, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you and despitefully use you. That's a hard choice. The easy choice is to follow the flesh. And we love our, en- uh, love our neighbor and we hate our enemy. Those that <clears throat> have mistreated us in the past, we shun we see them in the store, and we just go the other way. Don't acknowledge their presence at all. That's a cistern. That's not going to help you in your life. If you live your life that way, you'll have a very empty life. Unforgiving. Again, how do we interact with others? Is it according to the way that God has laid out for his people? This is how people will know that you're the children of your Father. This is how you interact with others. Choosing the fountain of living waters with this. Or do we interact with others more in, the, more in line with our own way of thinking? The, the cistern of payback. Again, of shunning those who maybe aren't like you. Of being hard-hearted instead of tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Or putting down others so that we can puff up ourselves that leads to a parched and empty life it's a broken cistern it won't help you it'll leave you empty and searching for something there's the fountain of living waters or the broken cistern of our own desires of our own way of living 
How are you with your purpose of life, your manner of living, and your interactions with others? Are you following? Are you partaking of the fountain of living waters? Or you say, nope, I don't want that. I don't like that way. I'm going to build my own cistern. I'm going to do it my way. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how astonished would the heavens be by your relationship with your Creator? Would they be gasping like they were with the Israelites? Be astonished, O ye heavens. Are you exchanging your glory for that which doth not profit? Forsaking the fountain of living waters and living life by your own efforts and your own wisdom. How absurd we can be at times. To think that we would know better than our God. To think that our cisterns could provide better water than the fountain of living waters. When God has given us a clear action that we should take, we know that is the best action that we could perform in that setting. If God says this is the way you should do it, that's the best way to do it. But far too often, again, we say, no thanks, I'll do it my way. And we build, I'll build myself a sister. That's an evil. Getting back to Isaiah, or Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Israel committed two evils. They forsook God, and they built their own cisterns. How astonished would the heavens be at your life? Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes, we'll go into a time of invitation. Before we move into the altar call, I do want to give an opportunity to anyone who in, in here who, does not, who is not sure of their eternal destination. Because we all will die at some time. Death's coming for each and every one of us. And where we go after we die is determinate on how what we did with Jesus Christ. As Pilate asked the Jews, what shall I do with Christ? And what have you done with Christ, or what will you do? He came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, but he died on the cross, and God placed the sin of, your sin upon him, or the sins of the entire world upon him, and judged him for your sin. That penalty is an eternity in a lake of fire. And Jesus was judged by God Almighty for your sin. But of course, because Jesus was God, he defeated death and hell. But that's unique to him alone. Anyone else who has been judged for sins is still in hell and will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. And if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, you're not sure uh, if you die tonight where you would go, I want to pray for you. If you could just lift your hand, I would pray for you. I won't embarrass you. Anyone in here at all says, I'm not sure I'm going, or I would like to know more, just go ahead and raise your hand, and I'll pray for you. All right, Christian. I know this verse was very convicting, or this passage was very convicting for me as I was reading it and then studying it out. How often we forsake the fountain of living waters that brings the purest water, that gives us the most strength, and we try to do things our own way, rejecting God's Wisdom, rejecting his path, and we forsake God. 
And the heavens are astonished at this. Lord, has been working on your heart through this evening, through this message. I invite you to come here um, when the music starts playing. But first, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we love you so much. And I pray that you just, uh, Lord, that your spirit convict where conviction is needed. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we be tender to your spirit's drawing. We pray in your name. Amen. Stand on our feet. Let's turn to page 490. We'll sing, Take My Life and Let It Be. Again, if God's been working on your heart, please come to the altar. 490.